Welcome to Conversations with Leaders, Ask the AWS Strategists. I'm Jake Burns, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Ishit Bashajani and Brian Landerman. Today, we talk about embracing imperfection and how important culture is to achieve this. Brian, Ishit, welcome back. Hey, Jake. Hey, Jake. So uh, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, perfect is the enemy of good. That's a good quote. I like that. Love that. So I have a theory. Uh, I think having this mindset of needing to be perfect can get you very far in your career to a point. And I think beyond that point, it creates uh, leaders who end up being uh, ineffective because they micromanage and they're just trying to and be involved in every single decision to ensure that it's perfect. So I think I think it's a it's a it's a strategy. It's a tactic that works well uh, up into, but it doesn't scale. You know, so when, while you're an individual contributor, you can have this attitude. But once you start managing a team, and once that team gets a certain size, it it quickly falls apart. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the right answer here is, but it. I want to say it's a learned behavior, right? And I, I, if you think about, especially in business, and I look back in my career, like I, I think I, I had success moving up because of my successes, not because of my failures, right? And <laughs> and I, I, that has to be a part of it, right? We are incentivizing the wins we are we celebrate the wins and and I, we, I know we talk a lot about celebrating the the failure but I, I think we're incentivizing that behavior to really kind of focus on whether it's being perfect i don't know if it's if it's perfection or or a lack of you know a willingness to fail but mm-hmm. i think i think perfection gets in the way of of reaching right it, it it's very I think it's easy to do something perfectly, but you're taking a lot less risk to your point. You're controlling so much more of it to make sure everything goes well. It's like you're, you're optimizing the, again, we, and we talked about this before, but you're optimizing the wrong problem. I think when you attempt to be perfect, um, mm-hmm. because what we really want, I think is to reach and to take risks and to learn. And I think perfection gets in the way of that. Yeah, if, you, if your work is very detail-oriented and limited in scope, this kind of perfectionist attitude can work very well. Right. Um, you know, because it's kind of almost synonymous with trying very hard, you know, actually putting in the effort, which I think, you know, people at the beginning of their career, that might be the lesson they need to learn is you need to try harder. You need to put in more effort. You need to be dedicated to this work. And so, you know, you learn that early on in your career that that produces good results, and then you, you're given more responsibility. And all of a sudden you become overloaded and you can't do it anymore. And so then the focus needs to shift to achieving goals, you know, getting things done. And then you realize that this, you know, if you're too obsessed with the details and you're too obsessed with perfection and ensuring that everything is, is done to a certain standard yourself and being directly involved in that, then things start slipping. Right. But I, I do think it's the, when we talk about perfection in business and, and, what we usually talk about, right, is C-level executives. I think at that point, you, your scope is so large that the way I see perfection kind of manifesting itself is in uh, risk avoidance, right? So it's not necessarily that things are perfect, but it's more that 
we want to we really want to be successful we want to make sure everything goes right we don't want any kind of marks on our record mm -hmm. and so we take a lot of time and and you know to to make sure that any any sort of risk that we're taking is pretty small and we we have confidence we're going to get through it or or not sticking our your, your neck out i think either one yeah. of those situations i think is is really dangerous to your business I feel like it goes back to, uh, I like your point about learned behavior, because I think it goes back to the education itself, right? The education system. Um, mm. And um, what do we measure? Uh, it's the grades uh, and GPAs, and that is all based on how much you got it right, right? So it is really the outcome sure. of what you got it right, and not the process of learning and discovery itself. In innovation, I think that is that is another big piece of that, right? And uh, uh, I loved, I think, in, I don't know if it was in the last one or one of the previous shareholder letters where uh, Jeff wrote about the, the process of wandering, that mm. when you are trying to create something new, the path isn't linear uh, and it shouldn't be linear. And while you need to plan and think about and uh, collect data and, and make data-driven decisions, but there's also value to the process of wandering, uh, because that's where discoveries happen. And that's where innovation happens. So I, I feel like that is such a contrary to following a plan and then hitting a target and staying on course perfectly versus taking the zigzag path of, oh, that didn't work. Uh, so I'm going to pivot and do something different, or I'm going to uh, try to achieve the same thing, but a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and you mentioned um, going towards a growth oriented mindset, which I think is so important. I think mm -hmm. there's stages to kind of the evolution of a, of a leader, right? And I think the first is, you know, early in your career, having that goal orientation is, is super important. But then at some point that doesn't scale um, and you have to have, you have to reorient towards growth, right? So you're not, you're no longer just trying to hit goals anymore. That's not good enough to, to, to you know, evolve further. Now you have to focus on how do I build mechanisms and put my effort into things that are going to be self-sustaining and, and uh, self-fulfilling and flywheels and that sort of thing, both in yourself and in your organization. Yeah. I, and, and I think the shooting for perfection in some ways, I feel like inherently forces you uh, to set those goals that are achievable. Uh, you can only shoot for perfection in some ways when you have either tried it or you know the process to get there. One of the things, Jake, you talked about was uh, that as you become from individual contributor to uh, leader managing teams, uh, and as you grow, you have to change that mindset, right? Uh, how have you, as leaders, senior executives, managed to do that for your teams? Because I think it, it is such an important aspect where leaders set an important direction and tone, especially when it comes to uh, embracing perfection because that's it that's what is going to make it acceptable right how do we how, how have you done that yeah, that's a great question I, i'll say i'll start off by uh for myself kind of how i changed my mindset and i think this applies to um all leaders really um the, one of the biggest blockers to to being able to have have the right mindset is trust in the people that work for you so what i see is you know in organizations where they move slowly because the leader is micromanaging. It's usually the root cause is a lack of trust. And it's not necessarily they don't think they have good people. It's just that they think they can make better decisions. So they try to get involved in all of the decisions. Um, when we're talking about um, kind of how do you make this pervasive 
uh, in your on your team, especially with uh, perhaps uh, individual contributors, I think it's maybe maybe a different problem to solve um, because a, a little bit of perfectionism is a good thing. You know, for them to be concentrated on the details is a good thing, but you need to make them understand that they need to balance that with actually delivering results. So it, it doesn't matter how good your work is if you're not delivering results. Is the is the point that I think needs to get through to those people? Yeah, I think you're right, but. I- I'm a little hung up. Yeah, feel on free s- to disagree with me. You don't have to uh, tell me oh, I'm right no, and then disagree I, with me. Trust me, I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I'm just thinking about um, like scaling this, scaling imperfection. And I'm, I don't know. I don't want to get hung up on the word because I, I think it, it is important to recognize that. But we're we're not after being perfect. But I could see a lot of people feeling like this could be a slippery slope, you know, talking about imperfection and let's be imperfect um, because it, it could certainly send the wrong message. Kind of like how, um, you know, embracing failure is could be misinterpreted, right? And and what we really mean when we say embracing failure is is something different and it's about learning and it's about um, learning quickly and failing fast and whatever else, right? So. What is, what is the, like, how would you redefine this into something that really crystallizes what we're talking about, what we, what we actually want to scale? Is it, um, is it moving quickly, um, or with partial information and, and, you know, trusting our gut versus, versus working for perfection and, and hundred percent confidence? Like how, how would you guys redefine imperfection? For me, it is uh, I, uh, it is a um, uh, bit of a courage, right? Because perfection uh, or the need for perfection uh, also has somewhat of a fear associated with that somewhere. Uh, that would be fear of failure, fear of not hitting your goal, uh, fear of not appearing in charge, wh- whatever that may be, right? So, um, I, I, but that's a great point, Brian, about how would you redefine it so that uh, it's clear as to what we mean by that. And for me, it is about taking bigger swings, uh, being courageous, letting go of the fear, both personal and also scaling that culture uh, in the rest of your teams and and uh, what you manage. That's one. Uh, the second part uh, is also about promoting this um, aspect of what I was talking about as, as uh, discovery, right? Where you want more experiments to thrive, where things are not things may not necessarily be clear uh, at the beginning as to what you're trying to do you may have a hypothesis but sometimes you may not even have a hypothesis so i that's why i think it is where you uh, where a lot of time leaders get hung up on where how are we going to measure the success of this experiment right well we don't know you know until we run some experiment we are not even going to sure what the right measures are um, and so it's it's that's the second part, right? One is the taking big swing, being courageous. The second is uh, promoting this uh, this discovery aspect where uh, non-linear innovation can try, right? Uh, it's non-linear leapfrogging innovation that should happen, uh, and that's the second part of uh, at least for me what embracing in imperfection means. Uh, and then obviously the third aspect is what you talked about, which is uh, making sure that mistakes are celebrated uh, and we learn from them uh, and you create the culture that uh, feels that it's okay to make those mistakes. 
I love letting go of fear. Yes, the the letting go of fear. Uh, you know, the way I look at it is there's um, a lot of ego involved in this, you know, um, and, and it's largely an ego problem, right? And this is a personal development issue. If, if you're going to be a senior leader, you need to have some control over your ego. And if your ego doesn't let you uh, delegate decision-making to your people, then it's going to limit you and your organization uh, to a large degree. Um, but also I think that the whole idea of imperfection, it's about prioritization as well. It's about knowing which decisions need to be perfect and which decisions don't need to be perfect. And coming to the realization that the vast majority of decisions do not need to be perfect. It's a very, very small percentage of uh, decisions. You know, at Amazon, we call them uh, one-way door decisions mm-hmm. versus the two-way door decisions that don't have to be mm-hmm. perfect. And you, mm-hmm. you're better off just moving forward without uh, overanalyzing the situation. So those are kind of like the key things that I look at. It's a, it's a great mental model. Uh, and Jake, maybe you may want to talk a little bit about what one-way doors and two-way doors are for... Uh those of our listeners who may not be familiar with those, because I think that's a, that's such a great mental model to think about where uh, you overbake and shoot for perfection versus not. Yeah. Brian, can you explain that? Uh, Jake, I would love to. Um, <laughs> well, I, one of the things I was going to add to, uh, you know, what you said was about ownership. And I think, so the one-way door, two-way door, it, it is a great mental model, but it is, rooted in our focus in our business on ownership. And so the one-way door is what what Jake was saying where you know we we want 95 plus you know percent confidence in our our decisions and it's you know for for us it's building data centers, building fulfillment centers, right? These are big investments that w- require a a good amount of, of consideration of location and um contractors, you know, all the things that go into building something. That's a big decision, really. So something that's not easily reversible. Exactly. Not easily reversible versus a two-way door where that that is all the experiments we run, right? All all the things that we can easily stop. We can easily change our mind. Um, And and that's a two-way door. You can operate with less data because we're free to change our mind. If it, if it doesn't turn out the way we expected. Mm-hmm. The door analogy um, is, you know, one-way door, you go through it, you can't come back. And a two-way door, you can go through it and then you can, it opens the other way as well. You can just step back if you don't like the uh, consequences. Right. But again, without ownership, you can have a two-way door. But if, if no one's there to make the decision to turn around and go back through it, then you <laughs> you don't really have a two-way door, right? So that's true. That's um, I think true. that's an important piece of it. Yeah. So having having that mental model is is great, but then you also have to have the supporting culture, which I think is driven by our leadership principles. Yep. Uh, and and uh, to support that, right? Um, and I think it, it in terms of removing fear, um, in my mind, it also starts with uh, being vulnerable as a leader. Right, where you can get yes. up there and uh, and say, "Hey, I made a mistake," or "I'm okay," or "I'm," or "I'm making this decision, not knowing fully well how it's going to turn out." Right, this is what mm-hmm. I know, and I'm going to place a bet on this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this need of uh, certainty that that a lot of leaders feel. Right, that when you are making a decision, uh, when you're communicating with your teams, 
you need to know things or you need to be the person in the room who actually knows stuff. Uh, and, and that's not necessary. And I think when you exhibit that behavior, uh, it, it, uh, it sends a signal to the rest of the teams as well that it's okay. It's okay to be uncertain. It's okay to be uh, unsure. And it's okay to uh, make decisions based on not having enough data in some cases. And it goes back to that earlier conversation we're having about learning and how we learn, right? And how we, how we tend to pick up these habits in life. Um, you know, if, if just because something worked didn't mean it was a good decision also. Right. So if the odds were against you and the ROI um, was was, you know, potential was bad and you get lucky, that wasn't a good decision. That was actually a bad decision. But people tend to do more of those things when that happened. And on the other hand, like you might place these bets where you are likely to succeed and it costs you very little. And maybe it fails three, four five, six times in a row, but they were still great decisions. You shouldn't change your strategy as a result of uh, chance not going your way. You should change your strategy based on um, when you kind of retroactively look at your analysis going into the decision and determine that maybe you were wrong about some of your assumptions. That's when you should change your strategy. Right, because you can place many small bets and and continue to make 5, 10, 20% difference uh, and continue to succeed always. But then you Mm -hmm. can swing for the fences in some cases and and try to place a bet that may uh, either be a 100 times better or fail completely, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the return on that one bet is is just so much bigger. Um, now, have, on the other side, though, I do think that uh, judgment uh, is very important in leaders as well, right? So if you continue to place those 100x bets and continue to fail over and over again, then that's not embracing imperfection. That just means you need to really look at how you're placing <laughs> those bets, right? So there is a it has to be a good judgment involved, and it can't be a series of decisions that are that continue to be imperfect. Right. So the counterpoint to what I was saying is uh, one of the things we utilize at Amazon is when the anecdotes uh, contradict the data. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you could do an analysis, you could decide this is a great idea and fail and fail repeatedly. And then you got to look at that. You got to look at that failure and say, maybe our data is wrong. Maybe, you know, uh, if, if the if the results are not consistent with the data, then maybe that's a that's a red flag that we should investigate. Yeah, I think that's true in how most of us operate. But I love that that's explicit here at Amazon and to, to really pay attention to the anecdotes to help us strengthen our ideas and make sure, to your point, like we talk a lot about breaking the status quo and and not continuing to do things. If your data is continue is reinforcing you know, what you're doing, but your data's wrong to your point, like really tough to make any sort of progress. But I kind of wanted to go back to this idea of, of, um, of scaling imperfection and, um, uh, removing fear in the organization, because I think like, I, I loved your point issued about leading by example. Mm-hmm. I think that is really important. And, and you've talked in the past about your, your floppy awards. We didn't have a floppy award, but we had, you know, a similar thing where we would, we would showcase the failures, right? We would stand up and, and do a, you know, kind of town hall or whatever, or like a, a lunch and learn talking about the failure to explicitly share the learnings. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's really important, but I don't want to, it to get lost that there are some things built into your organization that are reinforcing the fear. Mm. And mm. Th- like, I think it's, it's a really important to address those things as well. Right. I mean, I think it's like, 
um, going back to our, our innovation lab conversation is shit. No, let's um, not you remember go back that there. conversation. Oh, you know, let's revisit back. this, please. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but, but I mean, like the conversation there, right. Is about, you can't just kind of put something on the side and expect that to create lots of momentum and progress and innovation in the broader organization. It's not mm-hmm. how you scale it. So you can't just have these like learning events and expect now everyone is, you know, is embracing learning when how you're incentivized, how you how you promote people, how bonus is determined, whatever else. If all of those things are measured based on the successes and and not, you know, back to your point about like the red, yellow, green, like if it's only if you're either green or you failed, and if you if you failed, we're not going to incentivize you. Then you're not you're not incentivizing mm-hmm. learning. I I also think that this is something that cannot be done in isolation, right? So this is a much larger change that has to happen throughout the organization and the company, uh, and not necessarily within individual teams. You can have it. Right. You can be that team or the island of excellence, but then you will constantly bump against the inertia and 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 the rest of the culture, to your point, Brian, because right. the systems are designed uh, in some cases to not eliminate that. Uh, and then when it is unnatural behavior for us as a human and in teams, that means you have to you have to keep trying over and over again. So you almost have to apply a force in the reverse direction uh, for this behavior to set in. Uh, so I think this is one of those things where it truly has to start with the C-suite to drive that change. It, it, it can't be done just within a department or a function. They can be the catalyst, uh, but this change has to start across the board. Because uh, what you talked about, Brian, performance management is a big part of this. Yes. Right? You, you, can, you can say all you want. You can celebrate all you want. You can talk about and share your mistakes. But then come performance management time and then that system of assessing performance and then incentivizing is not in line with this concept of embracing imperfection, then things fall apart. Yeah. Um, I don't call it what you want, human resources, your your people department, whatever. Uh, I think they are so critical to your point in changing how your organization operates. Like if if you're not partnering with them right now and, and having these kinds of conversations about modern, you know, modern performance management techniques that, that match the culture you're trying to drive. Um, just as an example, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to make meaningful change. Yeah, that's, that's a big one. Um, and, and also it is something that, uh, you can't just replicate in isolation, right? The, the performance management yes. process isn't a system, isn't a ranking mechanism or because a lot of time when you, get into these conversations, you talk about, oh, some companies are uh, doing this uh, and they're successful, hence I'm going to take that system and apply it, right? It's a good idea to get inspired, but you need to then see it fits within the culture of how that company operates and what they are shooting for, what their principles are. Replicating that without actually also understanding everything around it uh, won't take you too far. Yeah, I love that you brought that up it's um i think it's so important understanding the fundamental or you know foundation of the idea of of the thing that you might might be trying to copy i think is critical and i would absolutely advocate that you make it your own right make it fit to your business the challenge there though is you also need to change who you are and how you operate and so you can't 
you need to be careful about making it fit your business or tailoring it to to how you are and having it just be the status quo. Now you've you've taken some new idea, right? And and just brought it back into the way you used to operate. You know what I mean? And I've seen it happen. We have a new name for it. <laughs> it's same it's <laughs> it's exactly the same thing we used to do. Now we're just calling it something. <laughs> yeah, else. oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a branding like exercise. Innovation labs. Yeah. You know? It's like it get the name gets co-opted by people who use it to push forward the status quo, you know? So I don't know if you've ever had an innovation lab at your company. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't. Have you issued? I, I did not. It did was a tech oh, lab. You didn't. It was <laughs> oh, not an innovation lab. lab. A tech lab, right. Southern right. difference. Oh, yeah. Tech, tech labs are a different thing entirely. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so interesting thing about uh, two-way door decisions that I've noticed is um, there's, it kind of goes in phases. Uh, you know, phase one is kind of recognizing the fact that there are that there are differences in the decisions that we face, uh, that you can categorize them as one-way door, two-way door. And then kind of realizing, when you realize which are which, then you can operate more effectively and not hesitate on those two-way door decisions and instill a culture where your people don't hesitate on those two-way door decisions, which is probably even more important, right? Where they know they don't have to escalate to a senior level decision maker in order to make a decision here. They just do it, right? And in fact, if they're if it's found out that they didn't, take action, then that's kind of an offense, right? That, uh, you know, needs to be corrected. But um, I think the next evolution of that and kind of my favorite part of it is when you can actually take one-way door decisions and turn them into two-way door decisions. Yes. And so I think like the most, um, the big, the, the most frequent example I use is unsurprisingly uh, moving to cloud. So it takes these kind of infrastructure decisions that you used to make that used to be one-way door decisions because you would make large investments in hardware and, and all these other things. Um, and time and effort uh, to get it all set up. And you do you accomplish the same thing with cloud. In actuality, you accomplish something better, but let's just say it's, it's equivalent. And that then becomes a two-way door decision because you can uh, implement it very quickly and you don't have to um, stay with that decision uh, from a financial aspect or a level of effort aspect. You can, in fact, just uh, decide the next day you don't want to do it anymore and poof, it's gone. You know, you go do something different. Great point about turn, taking a one-way door decision and turning that into two-way. I think that's uh, yes. Yeah, it's right. I, I think trying to optimize towards two-way doors is really important. But Jake, what you just brought up is kind of making me think of something that I'm hoping you guys want to talk about, but I know you'll be honest with me if you don't. We'll let um, you know if it's a bad idea. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Make it something interesting, Brian. Well, so you know, vendor lock-in is, is uh, something that comes up a ton. And when you put that into context of one-way door versus two-way door and embracing imperfection, obviously the perfect solution would be to have everything be portable, hmm. right? So that it's it's really easy so that there's no such thing as lock-in. That would be perfection. Um, we're talking about imperfection here. And <laughs> and you certainly give up a lot, right? One, you either spend a ton of time and money to to drive towards that perfection and that mobility, or you give up a lot by not leveraging native capabilities. Um, do you see that as like a two-way door kind of situation? Because I think it, I think it certainly can be. Um, but I see companies spending a lot of time and money as if it were a one-way door convers- uh, decision. It's a great way to actually, Brian. Yeah, great job. It's a great way to think about. Uh, yes, yes. No, I, I have not thought about the. Uh, Vendor lock-in is, uh, is, is through this lens. Uh, so, yeah, I love it. I actually love it. I also approve. Um, <laughs> Yay. 
<laughs> so um, I think it is almost the reverse of what Jake was saying, right? Where you try to take two-way door, one-way door decisions and make it into two-way door decision. Um, I think by trying to overstretch on these things, what you're doing is you're taking a two-way door decision and making it into a one-way door decision, right? By trying to create unnecessary abstraction, trying to increase complexity. So the way I, I thought about it is, is where is the where is that curve of cost versus value intersect, right? And what's hmm. what's truly the risk? What is a perceived risk versus what truly is the risk? Yes, um, right. And and what's the cost of mitigating that risk? Because I mean, if you look at traditional management, I mean, we all had, I don't know if you used it, but we had all had risk registers and right. all that, right? And we, and we, uh, when I started out with, you know, GE, one of the things that we always did was it was a, it was a calculator to say, what's the likelihood of this happening? Right. And what's the, what's yeah. the, what's the probability of this happening? And what's the impact of this happening? Right. And it gives you a score to say, is this a real, um, and if it is real, what's the cost of doing that, right? And then there were many risks that we uh, uh, acknowledge, but we chose to stay with them um, because they were either highly unlikely or the cost of addressing them uh, was just so much more than just dealing with the risk if it were to happen. So I think that's that's how I look at I look at this part. But it's it's a great way to think about this from a from a two way door standpoint and an imperfection aspect. Yeah I, yeah, I remember having conversations about like, do you want to take out an insurance plan? You know, like, do you want to go and pay, pay this premium up front and, and in the event that this thing happens or not, you know, and, and do we have the, the time and the money to, to do that? Or are we willing to, to take the risk and kind of like self-insure, you know, for, for this sort of situation? And, you know, we did, we looked at it in, in terms of how you're, you're talking about it, that it was it was in fact a two-way door. Like look at, I went and said, look at all the money we've spent on replatforming because we didn't pay attention to these platforms. We didn't invest over time. And now they're, they're so out of date and we're spending millions and millions of dollars replatforming these. Like that's our current mm -hmm. reality. So what makes you think that, you know, unless something changes significantly that, that we're going to not be in that same spot. So will it cost me money to move, to move out or move off of cloud native capabilities? Like, yeah, it will. But trying to abstract it and, and, and investing all of this right now just means that I'm going to build a whole bunch of stuff that the likelihood of us really, you know, maintaining that over time and, and achieving the portability that we think we're going to get is unlikely. So let's just pay for what we need when we need it, you know, and, and if we need to replatform and we need to move, then we'll make the investment then because we'll need to do it then, you know, and, and that's kind of how we made it a two way door decision for ourselves. Yeah. So the other way I think about it is how many email systems do we have? How many ERPs do we have? You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> yes. Do we have, uh, and that's not, so, so that's inherent of the, it's just nature of doing business, right? Um, right. and so certain risk is just part of doing business and you accept that risk. So you don't go and that's say, right. Hey, I'm going to actually run two different ERPs, uh, because I don't have a vendor login. You know what I mean? Well, I love that you brought that up, right? Because who is who is advocating to add ERPs? No one. Everyone is trying to consolidate, and yet for some reason with cloud, we're like, well, let's add more clouds. Mm -hmm. I want I want my own, and I want three publics, and it's like, why? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, not everyone is uh, is saying no. that. It is kind of like a 
unsilent minority, but, um, Un- you know, un- <laughs> unsilent minority. Interesting. I like that. <laughs> yeah. They get disproportionate kind of mind share from us because they bring it up loudly. Right. But, mm-hmm. uh, most customers are not trying to do that in my experience. No, that's fair. And I think, you know, there's another, it's not a binary thing. Right. And I, I really like that you brought this up, Brian, because, uh, I think this is something we need to talk about more and it, it goes deep and there's a lot here, but you know, the way I look at it from a high level is it's, it's not just, you know, even if you are taking a two way and making it a one way door, what else are you doing? What are the other effects? Because I would argue that buying hardware and data centers is a huge one way door. And if you can eliminate yeah. that one way door, it might be worth it to have a smaller one way door, you know, a vendor lock in with a, with a cloud provider, because that's so easy to back out of compared to you built this huge data center with all this hardware and you have all these sunk costs and these depreciation that you have to manage and all of that. Right. Yeah. So it gets a little bit more nuanced than a kind of a binary decision. In, if uh, Brian's sort of the uh, thing about insurance policy versus sort of taking the risk. Right. Uh, but I think this is it, it reminded me of something that it it's not just about having an insurance or not. Right. And assuming a risk, it's also having a very specific insurance policy that says at 3 p.m. if you're on this street and if a red car scratches you <laughs> coming from the left, only then yeah, this true. insurance applies, right? And then do you still want right. to pay for it, right? So it's a yeah, you're right. That's yeah. that's how I sort of think about it. Well, this has been uh, this has been a great conversation, guys. Maybe we could continue. Maybe we do a part two. Um, I think that we can we can really expand upon this. But uh, are you going to have us really back, Jake? It. Oh, great. I'm considering it. Okay, well, let me know. We'll see how it turns out. I'll I'll free up my schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Embracing imperfection isn't easy. It requires leaders to remove the fear of failure and shift learned behaviors. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and remember to submit your questions directly on the Enterprise Strategy blog or directly to us on LinkedIn. And we'll do our best to answer them in future episodes. See you next time.